0: If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, while you're turning there, I want to uh, also briefly mention the book that we have up here on the platform. They're free. If you've never read a book that focuses just on the resurrection of Christ and in in essence how we know that it's true, uh, a lot of them are very similar. I do like this one a lot, uh, so it would be great for you to read through this. But the main reason for this is for you to give this to someone you know. And and this may be one of those things you can give to someone that you've been friends with for a long time. And they know you go to church. And they know that you know they don't go to church. And you don't really ever talk about much. So you can, after you read this, tell them, ask them to read this book. It's only 70 pages, maybe 69. But ask them to read it. And tell them that what you would like from them is their honest evaluation of what it says. Tell them you have a hard time with that because you believe it, but you want to know what someone else thinks, a fresh set of eyes, and that, and that they won't hurt your feelings, that you really want to know, all right? And then, of course, uh, a couple things may happen. Then when you follow up and you invite them to coffee or whatever it is, they might try to get out of it, um, you know, say, that, you know, they, they can or whatever. There's usually two reasons for that. One, they haven't read it, uh, or it could be that they started to read it, or maybe read the whole thing, and they don't like what it says. You know, there's a force with the, with the fact that it's pretty hard to refute that Jesus rose from the dead. And they, they can't. And they don't want to. And they don't like it. That's why we pray. We pray for them. We pray that if they, as they read it, they won't be able to think about anything else. They can't get out of their mind. So, take, please take more than one. Now, I'm not asking you to make this your library and take 20. Uh, but please take more than one. Stick one in your car. Ladies, put in your purse. Have it there, because you may just happen chance to come upon somebody that you might not even know and say, ask if they'd be interested in reading this book and give it to them. Um, if you have to, write your phone number there. Say you would like to know what they think about it. Uh, but it's an easy way uh, to kind of broach the subject. Um, and one more thing. If, they, if, they, if the person you've given this to keeps putting you off when it comes to getting together uh, and talking about the book, Sometimes we kind of pull back because we're thinking, well, you know, I don't want to guilt them into reading it. Why not? What would be the objection to that? This is, this is truth. Right? This is the gospel of Christ. So you can't guilt them into receiving Christ, and you can't make them believe in Christ. But you can guilt them into reading this. Right? At least they'll, they'll, they're going to have this, and, and the Lord definitely can use that in their life. So please vary some of these, and you don't have to ask, can I take five? Yes, take five. All right. The goal is to give them away. If you need 10, then take 10. It's okay. Uh, we didn't get these so we can have them around afterwards. The idea is to get rid of them. Uh, so please, uh, but, but I would advise you to read it if you have it, just so you're familiar with it, so that you can talk to someone about it intelligently. All right, let's pray. We'll begin. Father, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you, Father, indeed, for the resurrection of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we know that our salvation is genuine. We know, Lord, that it is authentic. We know that it is real and true because Christ has truly indeed been raised from the dead. And there is no doubt about that. And for that, we thank you. We praise your name for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would use our witness, as feeble as it may be, whether it's just in giving a book or talking to someone or just letting them know that we do believe the resurrection, now, Father, you will use whatever means necessary that others, Father, will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and begin to consider the fact that they are separated from you. We ask, Lord, that you will bless our efforts in that area. We pray, also, Lord, that you will bless us this morning as we open your word. We ask, Lord, you would teach us. We ask, Lord, that you would that you would convict us, Father, of perhaps wrong thinking or even of a wrong way of living. And Father, that we may make things right in our life, that, we, that our lives may align with what the Amen. Word of God says. So, Father, we thank you again for your Word. We thank you, Father, for preserving it for us. And as always, we ask you, bless us, Lord, as we look and as we contemplate what is there. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 19, Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, Paul begins here by saying that as a a result of his conversion, he no longer evaluated people on the basis of externals. So, apparently, he did that at least some, and he no longer does that. He implies that his opponents, again, remember, there's those who are trying to get rid of his influence there in the church. Uh, and And to a certain extent, they have influenced those in the church. That's how they evaluated people. And that's how they were trying to discredit Paul. So at one time, as I said, this had been true of Paul. He had opposed Christ. He opposed the followers of Christ because he regarded Christ from a worldly point of view, from a fleshly point of view. He had information about Jesus. But again, that's not the same as believing in Jesus. Remember this, and I don't know who said this first, This has been around for a while, but mere information about Jesus cannot transform a person from self-centeredness to selflessness, right? So just because someone knows about Jesus or even believes he existed would not bring about any kind of transformation. Only conversion can bring that about, and it had done that for Paul if you look at Acts chapter 9. So the word therefore that he starts off with here in uh, verse 16 says, now on, therefore, Therefore, again, points back to verses 14 and 15. Those verses describe salvation. So after Paul's conversion, the way that that Paul viewed people, changed radically. And what, what we're tying into this is there's this idea in the Bible that's presented very strongly that when an individual becomes a Christian, you are changed. We're used to hearing the transformation stories of the drug addict or the alcoholic or you know the gang member or whatever it happens to be, and they've put that life behind them because they've been converted to Christ, and that's great. And it's true. But what we need to realize is sometimes I think some people do this. We excuse the lack of change in our life because we didn't have that kind of life before, and it's almost as if we're thinking that our life before Christ was okay. It wasn't perfect. No one would say that, but that it really was okay, and that's not true. There are immense changes that must take place in life when we come to Christ, and many of them are internal. It is the way we think. It's the way we approach life. It's the way we evaluate things. It's the way we treat people. It just goes on and on, and here Paul is talking about that. Remember that even though Paul was hunting down people, he he thought he was doing it for the Lord. He really did. That's not just some some excuse that he really was doing. He was zealous for God. Remember that his reputation, besides being very zealous, that he was a righteous man. He obeyed the law of God. He, in fact, was one of those guys that would dare you. I know that's prideful. But he would dare you to find in his life where he disobeyed the law of God. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anything. If there was anyone who, who exemplified being religious. It was Paul. Now, we, obviously no one could see what was going on on the inside of him, but this man was religious. He would be, in his unconverted state, the best Christian in our church, if he was in our church. He wouldn't be a Christian, if he'd be the best one. He would be the one who followed everything to a T and would be zealous about it. So from Paul's point of view, again, he now viewed people in a radically different way. From now on, he doesn't even recognize someone according to the flesh. He doesn't look at them according to their pedigree, their education, or their income, or anything like that. He no longer evaluated people based on the external worldly standards, as these false teachers did. The proud Pharisee, which he was, who scorned Gentiles, and even those Jews that were outside of his group, he now looked beyond just the outward appearances. His prejudice and hatred gave way to love for all, including, again, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and those who were free. That's why when it comes, you know, there's all these different issues that are out there today, when it comes to the issue of racial or ethnic prejudices. For the believer, that just should never be the case, period. And it doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter. That's wrong. Always, period. That's it. It's not, it's not even, you know, if you want to talk about it, you can. But it's just not, it shouldn't be a thing. And it's not a thing. There's no place for that. And sometimes we kind of join in with the world, even though we may condemn that, you know, with people that we know, we say, well, yeah, but you don't, you need to understand how he was raised. But do you not think that the power of God is stronger than the way we were raised? I'm convinced of it. I have seen it happen in the lives of individuals who were raised, they were steeped in racial prejudices. And I have seen it in miraculous ways change completely in the life of a person in two days. It's just incredible. That would be the norm, in a sense. That's what God does. He transforms lives. In fact, let me read to you again verse 11 of chapter 5, because I want to mention something about it which is important. In verse 11 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, it says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we, are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, for many years of my life, I understood verse 11 in a particular way. But this is what we have to remind ourselves of. Number one, the theme, what we're dealing with here, is Paul's defense of his integrity. The apostles' credibility was under attack from these false teachers who had infiltrated the church. Before they could get a hearing for their lies, they first had to tear down Paul's credibility in the minds of the people. Though their accusations were false, they were nonetheless dangerous. If the Corinthians believed the allegations, confidence in the word of God through Paul would be destroyed. So the key then to understanding this passage, verse 11, lies in the meaning of the verb persuade. And what I believe for many, many years, just kind of assuming it was true, was that it is referring to persuading people of the truth of the gospel. That's not what it's talking about. Because the gospel is not the issue in this passage. This is not an evangelistic epistle. Paul was not trying to persuade the Corinthian believers of the truth of the gospel, but rather the truth of his integrity. His integrity is a byproduct of his conversion to Christ. We then, the idea here, we'll see this develop, is that we then internally become people of integrity because of Christ and what he's done in our life. It's not only that there's a moral list of do's and don'ts that we now follow, or that we follow it better. That's true. But this is dealing more with, at the same time, what's going on in the inside, an actual transformation of the individual. That's why then which our key verse will be today and also next week in case you're wondering is therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. This is not only speaking about he is a new creation in that he outwardly follows certain criteria again that will happen to be a byproduct of what happens to the individual but you become someone very different. You are a new creation. It says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it. I'm going to to mention it a few times. But, you know, the the title of the message is Identity Dysphoria. And there's a lot of stuff going on in our country today. A lot of stuff going on in the lives of individuals and families. and, And a great deal of it does have to do with identity or maybe a lack of identity. People not either understanding or really being secure in who they are. A lot of the things that are going on in this idea of gender dysphoria really comes back to that. That is the issue. What do we identify as? How do we identify ourselves? Who are we? And and because of this, and there's a lot of different reasons and factors, and and I'm not going to really get into all that. I might kind of mention a few things along the way. But, But there are many, many different reasons why there's so much of this kind of thing going on. It used to be, the individuals would say, well, you know, I'm, you know they've, they, let's say they've, they've gotten a certain amount of money and they're going to take a, a longer vacation. and say, well, you know, I'm going to go hiking out in the Himalayas because I just need to find myself. Okay, well, there's, there's a lot that's going on there. I and mean, we can make jokes like, well, I didn't know you were lost. You're standing right in front of me and there's all that kind of stuff. But the idea is they want to find themselves. But that has not yet been resolved really in our society as a whole because, again, the society as a whole rejects the gospel." And so as these individuals, or as this idea floats around and people have children or raise their children, and this, this idea is kind of floating within the, the educational system, you will have people who will begin to do a lot of different things, and the whole trans idea that's out there comes out of that. That's really where it comes from. And, and these people, they're lost. Not just lost how you and I think of lost, because that is true. But they are lost, they have, there's no anchor, there's no moorings, they, they're, they're floating around and then they have all the insecurities of being accepted by people and, and, and this idea of wanting to belong, but you don't know where you belong because you don't have any identity and it's just all this weird stuff. And then if they find a group that, that brings them in or draws them in, they sometimes will be uh, uh, tempted to or and move towards maybe identifying with that group because that group has accepted them and makes them feel good about themselves. You know, because there's a lot of that involved there. There's all these different psychological factors. All of that is just an expression of individuals who just don't know Christ. And they don't know who they are. They've lost their identity. They don't understand what their identity should be or what it even is. For the believer, I truly believe this. For the true believer, we should never have that. Now, it's true. An individual may come to Christ and those are issues. But I believe that those issues will be resolved as they're discipled in the word of God even if they're not even addressed specifically, I believe that they will be resolved. So the norm, then, I believe, is that a true believer in Christ is not going to have that issue. Again, because of different factors and how we're raised, you know, there may be some struggles, but those are, I think, easily resolved. And of course, it takes a while for it to become cemented in the person's mind, that's true, so we're not trying to diminish that, and we shouldn't diminish those who are going through those issues, but there's but there are answers, and there is an answer, and it really is found in Christ, and it's what He's talking about here, and that is our union with Christ. Every believer's new life is a life that is what in Christ. The word "in" um, does not, in this connection, speak of location. It really is carrying the idea of union. On the resurrection side of this experience, we have. His life. He has come to live in us. It is this that marks the real difference between the old life prior to our salvation and the new life now that we are saved. It is necessary before the believer can enjoy victory in Christ for the power of the old life to be broken, this is accomplished through our union with Christ in his crucifixion. This is not an experience that we must struggle to enter into. It was accomplished for us in the past. So this is not where we have to go on a journey to kind of try to break the cycle. You don't need a journey. This is Christ accomplished this for us. We can have, therefore, and there's lots of ways to address this and other issues, but we can have absolute emotional, mental, and psychological stability in our lives as Christians because when we come to Christ, and he enters into our life, he does make us whole, and he helps us with that. There's an enormous amount of psychological weakness, I guess, and it's it's not to diminish anybody, but there's a, a lot of psychological weaknesses, a lot of psychological confusion, mental and emotional confusion in the life of people because they don't know who they are. They don't know who Christ is, what Christ has done for them. And so when we begin to recognize this, when we are discipled in Christ, again, it's, a, it's not that you even have to be aware of this and keep bringing this up and discipling someone, but the more they get to know Christ and what he's done for them and the transformation he brings inside of them as we are exposed to the truths of the word of God, that is worked out in our lives. You know, the word of God is always working in your life as a believer, even when you're not reading it. As you and I read it and think about it and contemplate, you know, the brain keeps working how God has designed us to be. And so we need to recognize the power, of the Word of God. That's why we really can never emphasize too much the importance of reading and studying the Scripture. We are, we are dealing with some massive dysfunction in all of our lives. Things we didn't even recognize. And God is healing us and is going to heal us of all those things. Yes, there is this progress that we make as believers. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be stuck in some cycle for X number of years until you're finally rescued from it. Some may go through that, but I don't think that's necessary. We have, we've also kind of accepted in our lifetimes an idea that an individual who is going through certain kinds of struggles, and we may say, well, but they've only been saved for 10 years. Now, I don't know what the time frame should be, but I, but I do believe that 10 years may be a bit too long. There are certain issues that can be addressed way before then. And sometimes that comes back maybe to a church that really hasn't emphasized enough the teaching of the Word of God and basing everything on what the Scripture says. It is not that the pastor needs to go on a series dealing with psychological this or that. It doesn't need to do that. Faithfully exposit the Word of God, and these things are going to be addressed in their lives. We may not use the labels that the world uses but we're using the labels that God gives us, the categories that God gives us, and in that we will find true healing and true completeness. So we really cannot overemphasize that because it is of vital importance, maybe more so because of the upheaval of the day in which we live in. You know, in Galatians 2.20, there is a verse that we're all very familiar with. The King James says, I am crucified with Christ, but that's really not the best translation the ESV, the New American Standard, the New King James, the American Standard Version of 1901, they all have it more clear where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. God got rid of the old self-life by crucifying it. We are separated from the old self-life when we died with Christ. Yes, there's still the struggle of living the Christian life because of the weakness of the flesh, but I have been, in the past tense, crucified with him. So, in Christ, then, describes every single believer's new position. That is also means it identifies or it reveals or describes our new identity, our new sphere of existence. Before we were born again into the kingdom of God, our existence was in Adam, or just in the flesh. It was under the influence of the world and in the kingdom of the devil. In the upper room discourse, just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus alluded to, to the idea of in Christ when he declared, in that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Paul expounded on the idea of a believer's new identity using the phrase in Christ or its synonyms. You know, that's in him, uh, in the beloved, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. That's used over 160 times in the New Testament. So again, in Christ summarizes this profound truth that believers are now and forever in spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why sometimes it is important to ask a new believer, how do they know they're saved? And many may say, well, because when I believed in Christ, I felt a burden lift. And that's marvelous. That's not how you know you're saved. Because a day may come when you feel the burden again. Our emotions vary. How do you know? I trust what Christ has said. I trust what he did. That's how I know. I believe what he said. I believe what he did. That's how I know. He keeps his word. That's the idea here. I am forever in Christ, regardless of how I feel. There will be days you will feel defeated. There will be days where you will sin, and you're going to be filled with guilt, which is great, by the way, because it's the Holy Spirit bringing that upon you, but you you will not have to struggle with does God still love me? You won't have to struggle with, am I still in the family? You may have those feelings, but you can overcome those feelings with the truth of the Word of God. Because Christ is in you, and that will never, ever be different. Remember that, the, that freedom in Christ, though, because there's this idea that because of our union with Christ, there's this freedom. Uh, and that freedom can, can be explained as it relates to a lot of different areas in our life. But that freedom that we have in Christ then is not the right to do as one pleases. It is the power to please God by doing what is right. Remember that as a non believer, you could in the flesh, maybe often, obey the law of God. It wouldn't do you much good, but you could, you could do that. It might do you good, at least in relationships on this planet. But you'd be able in the flesh to probably follow most of them. The idea is there's one thing you can never do. You can never please God. Because you see, even obeying the law of God in the flesh doesn't please God. Because what you are, in a sense, declaring is, is I don't need God. I can do right on my own. We are refusing to acknowledge our, our rebellion against God. In fact, remember the, uh, those, those there's several key words in Romans 1. Remember that it says that, um, that, that we are aware that God is angry about sin or unrighteousness. And ungodliness. Remember the difference between unrighteousness and ungodliness. Unrighteousness is the evil that we do. It's the acts. But ungodliness is very different. Ungodliness really is is an attitude. It's the idea that you live your life as if God is unimportant. Or you live your life as if God doesn't even exist. That's a sin of rebellion as well. That is ungodliness. And that's why then when we we may say that a non-believer sins... 24 hours a day. They, because they are living in sin. They remain in sin. Why? Because with every breath, they are refusing to acknowledge God. Remember, the one who is the author of their life. The one who, because he exists, they, they sustains their life. All of their abilities they have naturally are from God. They're refusing to acknowledge any of that. That is the act of rebellion. And so the freedom, then, that we have when we come to Christ is for the first time in our lives, we now have the power to please God by doing what is right. But too often that's not understood. To be in Christ is the redeemed man's new environment in the sphere of really what we might call resurrection life. That's a term that you'll find used in some books that were written in the early 1900s. The key word there is the word environment, meaning this, being in Christ is not a barren state. It is not an almost unreal positional truth but it is a vital, pulsating, functioning involvement. The chief characteristics of this, envo- of this environment is resurrection life because it's the life of Christ himself. James Montgomery Boyce says this, The phrases, in Christ, in him, occur over 160 times, all in Paul's writings. The phrases mean more than just believing on Christ or being saved by his atonement. They mean being joined to Christ in one spiritual body. So that what is true of him is also true for us. This is a difficult concept. And the Bible uses numerous images to teach it to us. The union of a man and woman in marriage, which is also a new identity. The union of the vine and the branches. The wholeness of a spiritual temple in which Christ is the foundation. And we the individual stones. The union of the head and other members of the body in one organism. But whether we understand it or not, union with Christ is in one sense the very essence of our salvation. Apart from Christ, our condition is absolutely hopeless. In him, our condition then is glorious to the extreme. So that's why we we, we want to pause and just kind of dwell on this for uh, just a a wee bit of time. Again, in Christ can mean several things that are not mutually exclusive. It means that one belongs to Christ. It means that one lives in the sphere of Christ's power. It means that one is united with Christ, or that one is part of the body of Christ, the believing community. Paul's assumption is that being in Christ should bring about a radical change in a person's life. What I want you to think about this morning as we contemplate being in Christ is you do need to ask yourself, are you really any different? And that can be a difficult question to answer. I'm not asking, are you living perfectly? None of us are. But on the inside, when it comes to the way you think, when it comes to what you daydream about, when it comes to how you evaluate other people, when it comes to how you respond, is is there change? Has there been change, and is there change in your life? Can you boldly proclaim that, yes, you belong to Christ, heart, mind, and soul? Are you committed to that concept, to where that is what drives you? Remember that last week, one of the things we looked at is when it talks about God's love constraining us, Is not so much the idea of how much do you love God, because that all the focus is on you, but that because his love for us, which is on us, is so powerful, we cannot help but be different. There are times where sometimes there's an individual who may be going through some great struggles in their life. And maybe they're struggling with some kind of addiction and they just keep making all these bad, horrible decisions. They have this feeling of hopelessness and, and whatnot. And sometimes their family is trying to understand because they say to them, don't you understand how much we love you? And the idea behind that and what they are saying is, is, our love for you should be all-consuming. You know that you are accepted no matter what. You should never have any doubts about that. So how then can you have all of these insecurities that lead you to make these kinds of decisions? Because you are loved and you belong with us. You're part of us. That's always been there. Why are you rejecting it? You know, there are all kinds of reasons. We're not going to get into all the nuances of that. But that's the idea with that. And so Paul really, in a sense, is continuing that kind of idea. What has Christ done for us? And that by itself is life transforming. And is not based on my commitment to Christ. That's a byproduct of what he has done for me. Philip Hughes says this, The expression in Christ sums up as profoundly as possible The inexhaustible significance of our redemption. It speaks of security in him, who himself has borne in his own body the judgment of God against our sin. It speaks of acceptance in him, with whom alone God is well pleased. It speaks of assurance for the future in him, who is the resurrection and the life. It speaks of the inheritance of glory in him, who as the only begotten son is the sole heir of God. And it speaks of participation in the divine nature in him who is the everlasting word it speaks of knowing the truth and being free in that truth in him who himself is the truth all this and more can uh, all this and more than can ever be expressed in human language is meant by being in Christ belonging is when people accept you for who you are relationships are an important factor in our sense of belonging who and where we belong Uh, influences our sense of identity. Your identity defines who you are. That's why we don't get caught up in identifying ourselves as just being, for example, a great athlete. A lot of athletes who are not believers go through this great struggle, especially if they've attained a lot of individual accolades and awards, where they're used to people immediately recognizing them for what they do on the field and how they perform. And so they're treated usually very very differently, very special. Everybody wants to be around them. Everybody wants to know what they have to think about everything. It becomes crazy. And then when they get to the point in their life when they retire or they're unable to, to perform anymore because of injury, some of them go through a very deep, dark depression because their entire life changes. Why? Because they have solely identified with their athletic prowess. And when that's gone, they're left only with themselves and there's nothing there. And they really can struggle. They all don't do that. It is profound in some because we see it clearly. Others, they just keep it hidden through other pursuits. For the believer, we never have to worry about that because we have that identity with Christ. That's why we identify with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. We identify with the family of God, and that will never change. We are social creatures we do have a very strong desire to connect with others, not just as peers, not just as co-workers, not just as acquaintances or Facebook friends, but deeply and intimately. We long to feel valued and supported. We long to share our thoughts and emotions and life with others. That describes how God has created us to be, which explains why God says in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. Again, yes, he was focused on giving to Adam a life's partner, but that term means such much, so much more than just that. We long even to feel needed by others. Many individuals who are up in age begin to go through a kind of difficulty because they no longer feel needed. It's not that they don't feel important. It's not, they may think the word important. That's not what it is. They don't feel needed. And when you no longer feel needed, it's almost like, why bother? Why bother? And it's important for that not to go away. These desires reflect a fundamental human need to not only be in the physical presence of others, but to belong with them. This is why the broken home has such a profound and long-lasting impact on people. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to receive a new identity. That is part and parcel what it means to be in Christ. John Piper says this. He says, In Jesus... We do not lose our true selves, but we become our true selves only in him. And so there's three points he makes. Point number one. In Christ, we no longer chase after the desires of our flesh, but instead seek to bring God glory in all areas of our life. It doesn't mean you're no longer trying to succeed in business. That's fine. It doesn't mean you're not trying to succeed on the athletic field. That's fine. But that is not what identifies you as an individual. It really is this. As a Christian, I am pursuing this. As a Christian, I want to be a good husband. I don't just want to be a good husband. I want to be a good Christian husband. What does that mean? I don't just want to be a good father. I just don't want my kids to say good things about me when I get old and die. I really want to be a Christian father because I want them to be that long-lasting impact. So when it comes to all these things that we pursue, being a Christian is what describes who we are, uh, this identity we have with Christ, because the word Christian means to belong to Christ. Secondly, it means this. We no longer fear the future. And we've talked a lot about that when it comes even to to dealing with death uh, and whatnot as we've looked at the things that Paul has said. And here's the last thing, which relates to exactly what he's been talking about. We have no need to judge or compare ourselves to others when we seek to please Christ alone in whom our identity is hidden. We see this reflected in all that Paul has said here in 2 Corinthians. We may do this a lot. We judge or compare ourselves to others who are similar to us, maybe a similar career, maybe a similar family, maybe a similar group of friends. And in our minds, sometimes we may go through moments of insecurity, or moments of disappointment uh, because we don't measure up. Maybe we, we long for a little more uh, pat on the backs from others or at least this idea that others have maybe a greater respect for us because we really are accomplishing something. I know that in the, in the circle of some pastors where this has happened, where you know the, the main concern is how many people come to your church on Sunday morning. And the higher the number, the more important you are. And, there's, and a lot of guys have to get over that. that. That can be hard. Some never do. Some never do. Some will say, oh, it means nothing to me, but we do have 1,000 on Sundays. You know? Some will say, well, yeah, it's, it's not important to me. I, you know, I don't pastor a megachurch. We have 600. How many do you have? 80? Just so you know, you know, just so you know, still in our country, the average Christian church on Sunday morning has 60 to 70 people. All these mega churches we got that's astounding but that's still the majority of churches and 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 a lot of organizations will say that that you know they don't want to only prop up pastors of large churches but then when you look at who all the special speakers are all of them come from churches that are 2000 or more now some of them are very godly so i'm not i'm not mocking them it just seems that so where's the guy who pastors 60 where's he at cuz i know there's some godly men who can speak powerfully And preach the word of God really well who pastors 60 people. How come he's not on here? We don't even know their name. Thank goodness God does. But when it comes to you as an individual, no matter what field you're in, the change that Christ makes in us is that you and I will have a greater confidence, because it's confidence in him, so we have a greater confidence in living life. Regardless of what you do or do not accomplish at work, Regardless of what you do or do not accomplish in your career, or what you do or do not accomplish with your family, all those external measuring sticks just go out the window. They are unimportant. And we're able to do so not because it's a way of falsely propping ourselves up because we haven't accomplished those things, but because we really have grabbed hold of the truth of Christ and what it means to be in Christ and desperately wanting our family and our friends to embrace that as well. Because if they have embraced that, it will be well with them. They will be fine in every way. If they don't, they have much misery that lies ahead of them. So we will continue this next week in in trying to unpack this more and more. But we need to really absorb and embrace what it means to be in Christ and understand what he says here, that that uh, because we are in Christ, we are a new creation, and old things have passed away. I want you to be able to embrace that, and enjoy that, and praise the Lord for that, and, and evaluate yourself in that manner. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and kindness and love. Father, most of us, and maybe all of us, are so grateful that when we became Christians, we became a new creation, because the old us was going in the wrong direction. The old us would be rude and we would be mean-spirited, we would be seeking revenge, we would be quick-tempered, we would be unbelievably selfish, and maybe many other things. For sure we would have messed up our lives in so many ways. And so, Father, we thank you for delivering us. We thank you, Lord, that when you delivered us from sin, you did not only save us so that we could go to heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you care so much about us that you have been transforming us into the image of your son, Christ. Father, we are sorry that we have ever stood in your way of that. We, we, we regret that we ourselves have times have been the, the obstacle to the maturity that comes from your spirit. But Father, we want to let all that go. We pray, Lord, that you help us to really understand what it means to be in Christ. Maybe for some of us, maybe for many of us, Father, here, we have never really had to struggle with our identity. Many different reasons why, but as a believer, we know, Lord, that wherever we were in life, we really have never had to struggle with that because we know who we are in Christ. Though we may not understand all of it, we know who we are, and for that we're grateful. We pray, Lord, that you give us a great sympathy for those who do not possess that. Help us, Father, to never look at them cynically. Help us, Father, to never take their their journey or their uh, sense of fear lightly. Help us, Father, to never mock them. But give us the wisdom that we need to embrace them, to love them, and to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. To give them what they truly, truly need. To give them that stability, the sense of satisfaction and indeed the deep joy that we experience as Christians. We even thank you, Father, for the lack of fear that we have in life. It's because of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that our faith would grow strong as we better understand your word, that our faith would improve as we recognize all that Christ is, and give to us, Father, a great sense of contentment, knowing that Christ does dwell within us. For that we are grateful. Father, for those who do not possess what we possess, and some may be here this morning, we pray, Lord, that perhaps you would put a spotlight on their sense of emptiness. We don't want to see them suffer, Father, but we do understand that it may be best for them to experience the depth of their lostness so they will clearly see their need for Christ. And we pray, Lord, that if they speak to us or others, the Father, that the believer they speak to will have the wisdom to be able to explain to them Jesus Christ and the gospel and how they can be united with you and you with them. We thank you, Lord, again, as Paul has said earlier, that we have this treasure. Even though it's in an earthen jar, we possess that, and we thank you. We praise your name, Father, for all that you've done for us, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.